morning, everybody. Thank you. So today we are entering our third decade of life as a church. We, last Sunday, if you were here, we had a big celebration because we were celebrating 20 years of life, 20 years of this church being in existence and this church doing what God has called us to do. And that, that should uh, raise a natural question for all of us, which is like, okay, we're 20 years in, now what? You know, we talked about kind of celebrating all the stuff that we've done, all the stuff that God's done through the church um, over the many years and God's faithfulness and our gratitude for that. And it's weird to think, but now here we are at this kind of this new season of uh, our church's life and another decade just began. So like 10 years from now, 20 years from now, which that's probably about the end of my tenure at that point, 20, you know, maybe 20 years out, something like that. Maybe I'm about halfway through. Um, what, what is our church going to be like? Who are we going to be as a church moving forward? And we always like to take some time in the fall to just kind of hit the pause button on our regular studies or different things that we're doing before we start a new series and talk about who we are. Who, who are we as a church? We use this phrase around Life Roads that we exist to help people become fully alive in Christ. And those words we borrow from Jesus in John chapter 10 where He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full, depending on which translation you're you're reading from. And so this idea of a fullness of life is really the heartbeat behind who we are as a church. Um, You know, we... In 2020, we, I think there was a lot of pastors that if they had a vision series or something, they were talking about who, who their churches were as a church. It was very easy in the year 2020 to have a series titled something like 2020 Vision. You know, who, who are we as a church? What are we going to be doing moving forward? Here's what we're going to be doing in the year ahead. And then 2020 happened. <laughs> right? And, and it's like no one saw that coming with their 2020 vision, Right? <laughs> about how everything was going to be disrupted and all of that. And, and, and even in spite of not knowing what the future looks like exactly, the things that we're going to be talking about today will remain true of our church, regardless of what the next 12 months, 24 months, you know, 10 years look like. We, what is true of our church? What do we mean by being fully alive in Christ? This really is the heartbeat behind what we do and really everything we do as a church, whether that's working with our youth whether that's working with you know, adult discipleship stuff, men's groups, women's groups, all of these things, the heartbeat behind everything is this mission of helping people become fully alive in Christ. And to illustrate this story and this, this phrase, we're going to be looking at a story from the scriptures in John chapter 4. That'll be our text this morning. And I find myself coming back to this story over and over again because I think it speaks so deeply to what humanity is looking for and what our church Um, really is all about. So John chapter 4, this is the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And I I come back to this story over and over again, find myself drawn back to this because I think it speaks to this so perfectly. What what do we mean by being fully alive in Christ, helping people meet the deepest needs of the human heart, and how Jesus does this, how Jesus brings life to people who are spiritually dead? John chapter 4, and we're going to start reading in verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his sons, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. I want to pause for just a moment before we move on and talk about just that, those opening verses there. Jesus is leaving Judea. He's leaving an area in the south of Israel, and he's heading up to Galilee, which is kind of hometown area, home base area, going from Jerusalem where he had been with his disciples to now going up to uh, Galilee where a lot of his ministry would be carried out. And as he's going from south to north, um, the way that they would travel typically during this time period, if you were a Jewish person, is that you would skip the region of Samaria. Even if it was the most direct route on your journey, you would cross the, um, what's the river that goes through Israel? The Jordan River, thank you. You'd cross the Jordan, you'd go north around the other side, skip Samaria, cross the Jordan again, get to wherever your location was if it was directly north uh, from where you departed. And this is, the reasons why this was was done typically by people traveling during this time or a Jewish person during this time is because Samaria was a region of of the country or a part of Israel that was not looked upon kindly. During the Babylonian exile, the time when Israel was carried off into captivity, Um, The Samaritans were this group of people that had sort of intermarried between the Jewish people and the Babylonian settlers, the Assyrian settlers that had been uh, placed there to kind of uh, live in these towns that they'd been carried away from. And and they were a, a group of people that were looked down upon. The Jewish people looked down upon these people, and these people in turn looked down upon them. And there was this animosity between this region of the country and the rest of the country because of this this, this uh, kind of racial difference between them. There, there was some kind of race, racist aspects of that, certainly. And, and it was a, an area where they're like, you're not real Jews. You're, you're kind of mixed with uh, other, other ethnicities. And because of that, there was this tension between them that we, of course, looking back on that now, many years later ago, there was, that was wrong, that there was this kind of difference between them. But it also had to do with the way that they practiced the Jewish faith. That they, they considered it to be watered down by them, and they, they didn't worship at the temple. And it was this group of people that had a great deal of tension between each other. And so because of that, you know, on the Google Maps uh, or whatever map application you use, if you're trying to find your way around a new location, you have little toggle switches, and you can set, I'm going to go just to highways or avoid highways or avoid toll roads. And on my phone, it's set to always avoid toll roads. That switch is just constantly switched. Um, and because you never know, you know, you're in Seattle or somewhere and end up on a toll road. And, and so I have that, you know, set to not send me on toll roads in, if there was something like that during first century Palestine, they would have like avoid Samaria, right? Just like, I want to go North, but avoid Samaria, right? But Jesus, it says he had to go to Samaria. There's a sense of mission or calling or purpose in Jesus has, has a plan. Jesus knows that the Father has something planned for him in Samaria. He's not going to miss it. And so they go through Samaria. And it's been a long journey. There's, he's sitting beside a well, and Scripture tells us it's about the sixth hour. So that would be noon by our way of telling time. Here our story picks back up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then we have this parenthetical statement. 
for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the controversy continues because it's not only this, this barrier between them ethnicity-wise or whatever culture-wise, now it's this a man having a conversation with a woman, which is also unusual during this time. The Jewish people, Jewish men in particular, would not have conversations with, with Jewish women in, or any kind of woman in public. But Jesus is continuing the conversation. He says, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Scripture goes on to tell us after this that, that the Samaritans respond in great numbers. They, the woman goes and, and Jesus meets with the Samaritans and they believe in him. They believe in him in ways that the, the Jewish people that Jesus was originally ministering to did not believe in him. But they say there's something about him and we believe also that he is the Messiah. He's the one that we have been waiting for. This conversation between Jesus and this woman is, is a powerful example of Jesus' ministry, just what Jesus came to do and the way that Jesus came to seek and to save those who are lost. And he comes and speaks to this woman, and this woman is, is isolated from her community. And we know that because of the clues in the text that she's there at noon to collect the water that she needs for the day from the well. And at noon would be a pretty warm time of the day, right? This climate is very similar to, you know, Arizona or places like that, just desert climate, hot and arid. And you, if you've ever lived in that kind of climate, you know that you want to do anything that's going to put you outside in the hottest part of the day, you want to, or, or stuff that is going to be uh, hot outside, you want to get that done early in the morning. So if you live in Arizona and you want to mow your lawn, you want to get that done before the hottest time of the day. 
If you're going to be carrying a massive amount of water that you're going to need for the day, you're not going to want to do that at noon, the hottest time of the day. If you're doing that, it's probably because you don't want to go when everyone else is out there. That the women, this was carrying water, it was largely what the women in this culture did. It was kind of like, this is the woman's job is to carry the water. And they would go down to the well, they would draw the water that they needed for the day, they would carry it back, and water is very heavy. You know that if you've ever carried a bucket of water anywhere. You're washing your car or whatever the case may be, you buy the big thing of water at the store. It's heavy, it's hard work. And so the women would gather together and they would do this hard work together in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. And this woman doesn't want to be there when all the other women are there. She knows that it's going to feel awkward if she's there. She's dealing with some shame probably. She's been through all of these relationships with all of these men and she she knows that the community doesn't look kindly upon her. She's not a valued member of, of that town. She's someone who's kind of living on the outskirts, and so she does things when other people won't be there because she, does, she wants to avoid any awkwardness, we think, from what the text is telling us. But she shows up, and when she's expecting no one to be at the well, she meets Jesus instead. And Jesus begins this conversation with her, and it starts very simple. In that culture, if you're able to draw water and give a stranger a drink of water, this is a very common thing to do. There's not public water fountains around. Can I please have a drink? She says, sure, I'll give you a drink. But then the conversation flips from there to being about something far more than physical water. It's a conversation about spiritual water. She's surprised that he would even have a conversation with her. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer that question directly. But I want to tell you that if you knew who you were talking to, if you knew the gift of God, we were just singing about God's grace this morning. If you knew God's grace and if you knew who it was that you were having a conversation with right now, you would ask me for water. And I would give you the kind of water that never runs out. I would give you living water. And she says, wow, that sounds pretty great because this is a lot of work getting this water. So if you could give me the living water that never runs out and I don't have to come here anymore to do this, it's warm right now. I don't want to carry a heavy thing of water back to town. Where do you get that living water? You don't even have anything to draw water out with. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He's the one who gave us this well, but you have some other water source that we don't know about? He says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She says, boy, that sounds great. Not her exact words. She says, sir, give me this water (laughs) so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And then Jesus goes there. Jesus goes there in the next part of the conversation. He knows this woman. He knows something more about her than she is aware that he knows about her. He says, would you go get your husband and then we'll continue this conversation. And this is that kind of record scratch moment, you know, like, well, okay. She, she's like, oh, you want to talk about my husband? Well, turns out I have no husband. And he goes there again. He steps further into it. and He says, I know. I know that about you. He says, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And there's this moment here. I imagine, like, 
if we put ourselves into these stories, I encourage you when you read scripture to, to engage your imagination. And if you were that woman in that story, and Jesus said that to you, maybe your face would grow flushed. You're kind of embarrassed in that moment. How do, how do you even know that about me? But I don't think when she was looking at Jesus, I don't think she saw someone with a scowl on his face. I think she saw someone with deep compassion for her and love for her. And he pressed into this issue in her heart. You're right. You, you don't have a husband. You've been married five times and you're with someone now, but you're not married to that person. And rather than her feeling, I think, shame, I think she saw something that made her want to continue the conversation. It wasn't a conversation ender. It was, it was a deeper conversation was just beginning in this moment because Jesus was speaking to her, to her heart and to what was going on internally, that there was some drive. And we don't know her story, right? We have to speculate a little bit. What's going on in her life that she had that, that many relationships? She went from one relationship to another relationship. And I'm sure there's all kinds of sad stories and brokenness in her life. Seems that she was looking for something maybe and not finding it. But here, she's not feeling, I don't think, just a, a sense of rejection by Jesus. She's feeling compassion, I think, and love. And she says to him, and I have to think that maybe she was a little sarcastic in her response in verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you were a prophet. You know stuff about me that I did not tell you. So since you're a prophet, you're some kind of spiritual guru type, let's have a conversation about worship. You know, there's this controversy amongst our people and your people. You say that we're supposed to worship, worship in Jerusalem. We worship on this mountain, and that's our place of worship. That's our sacred place. And so, well, would you solve the controversy for me, prophet, person who knows things about me that I didn't tell you? And she said, it, Jesus continues to press in. He says, oh, you want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. We'll talk more about what that phrase means in a few moments. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says some incredibly good news here. God is assembling a group of people who will worship him. And he wants the kind of worship that is not just truth-based worship or spirit-based worship, but is both of them together, spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking out people who will be his worshipers. And she says, well, the Messiah is coming. When the Messiah is coming, he's going to explain all the details and the confusion, the things that we're divided over. He's going to tell us the truth, and then everything will be cleared up, all those controversies. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. I'm here. What you've been waiting for is right here with you. She can't stand it anymore. She's like, I've got to go tell everybody I know about who I met at the well. And so she goes back to her town, says, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him and many believed in him. And if you continue the story of Samaria in the book of Acts, that this is where the, the gospel quickly goes to Samaria, to these people who were prepared now for this and communities of Christ begin to form in Samaria, this group of people that have been rejected and living their lives on the, on the outskirts 
of the culture at that time. They believe in Jesus, and it starts here in this moment, and then later in the book of Acts, the gospel continues to spread. Jesus says so many deep things to her that we want to spend some time unpacking a little bit together this morning, and there, there's a phrase that people use pretty commonly in our, in our culture today. If you pay attention for it, you'll notice this phrase, and it's that we are experiencing a crisis of meaning in our culture, that, that there's a real breakdown in the sources of meaning that people are looking for, and you see symptoms of this all over the place. People are this kind of low-level dissatisfaction with life that we're missing out on something. It's like there's got to be, it's, it sounds like this, there's got to be more than this. And you hear this from even the most successful people. People that have found what our culture says, if you find these few things, this is, this is the, the path to the good life. This is where you find the most meaningful life. And people that have pursued that and mastered it in some ways, like this is the, the celebrities that have the 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 triad, right? We talked about earlier this year this unholy trinity of money, sex, and power that our culture holds up as saying these are the ultimate. And if you have all of this and you pursue this with everything that you have, then that'll somehow bring fulfillment. But people are finding, hey, it's not all it's cracked up to be. Turns out even when you achieve it all, there can still be this deep sense that something's missing. And I think Jesus is speaking to this woman because he, in, in this way and having the conversation the way he's having it with her because she knows that there's something missing in her life. It's that U2 song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Right? It's been looking and looking and not finding it and there's a hole in her soul. Right? There's something missing deep in her heart And she's having trouble maybe putting her finger on it, but for her it seems that the path that she's been pursuing, that she's pretty sure she's going to find fulfillment in, is in a relationship with a man. And again, speculating a little bit, we don't know exactly what was going on with all those relationships, but maybe she was pursuing one relationship and that it wasn't giving her what she thought she was looking for. So on to the next one, maybe that one. And it starts off with great promise, like this is the one. This, this relationship is going to solve this deep need in my heart. And then the honeymoon period's over, and it turns out, no, that one let her down too, and maybe it's the next one. And Jesus knows when he begins the conversation with her that she, what she has been looking for is actually him. She, she's been looking for a relationship with God but looking for it in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong places, so to speak, right? To quote another song. There's a really common um, dynamic with Olympic athletes, and I've talked about this in previous sermons, but Olympic athletes at the peak of their career athletically, something that they've trained for all their life, finding what they were looking for, winning gold, winning big time, being on the big stage and in the spotlight and winning gold medal after gold medal, Michael Phelps is a great example of this, one of the winningest Olympic athletes of all time. But then finding after they achieve this peak performance event, spiraling into despair. They achieved what they, they'd been working for all their life, and then it turns out that they're still not happy. There's something missing still. And they have this deep sense that something's still wrong here. 
What is this? And Michael Phelps has talked about this in a lot of interviews and podcasts and different things. But my answer for, I think, what they're missing is what we've been talking about, that they're missing the living water that only a relationship with God provides. There's this phrase that Henry David Thoreau uh, used, and I discovered Henry David Thoreau, by the way, when I was uh, in the Navy and very bored. And so on my, on my free time, I would, we would just read. You know, it was like this is the days before smartphones and internet and stuff, and so we'd pass around books. It's like, what, what book do you have? The different people, we'd collect our books together. And then I discovered the library on the ship, and there was a lot of books there. And so, but I picked up a book by Henry David Thoreau and discovered that I really liked this writer. And there's, in his book on civil disobedience, he uses this phrase. He says, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I just love his way of phrasing that, that he's saying that when he considers humanity as a whole, there's this sense of quiet desperation. This sense of something missing, something is lacking, but they're kind of quiet about it. They just kind of shove it down. Not sure how to answer it, so I'm not even going to deal with it. Maybe I'll do something to numb it so I don't have to think about those kind of questions. I think this is behind the rise in, in uh, psychedelic use right now. You hear a lot about ayahuasca and DMT and some of our celebrities and stuff taking these journeys, so to speak, on, on different psychedelic things, trying to find something. Like I just, I've, I've got Fortune 500 company, big tech company that was sold to Google or Facebook, and I've got lots of money now, and I'm not happy. What am I missing? And so they pursue yet another route. Maybe it's over here in the, in the use of psychedelics, and if I go on a journey, then the deep questions of my heart will be answered there. Pascal, Blaise Pascal, was a, was a scientist and a really bright individual who uh, was also a person of faith. And he talks about this idea of a God-shaped hole in your heart. When I think about these concepts that we've been talking about today, one of the things that comes to mind uh, for me is an interview that Tom Brady gave on 60 Minutes. This is back in 2005. So he was 27 years old. Tom Brady is, if you're not familiar with that name, I know not everyone's into sports ball in this room here, but um, for those of you who aren't uh, big sports fans, Tom Brady's a quarterback, very successful quarterback, who keeps on playing. He's like my age, and he's still playing um, in the NFL. And he doesn't want to retire. He just has this he just drive and wants to continue to compete. But when he was 27 years old, he gave an interview to 60 Minutes. And I want to show you just a little snippet of that interview. If you've been coming here for a long time, you've probably seen at least some of this interview before. But I want you to take a look at this on the screen behind me. Can you go out to restaurants? If I have the energy to deal with, you know, put an happy face on, sometimes I don't feel like that. Now, you seem a bit the reluctant star. Well, the problem is it's, you can't have one without the other. You can't have the football fame and not the other stuff. So, in a lot of ways, I've created this myself. <laughs> it's what you always wanted. <laughs> You're right. You're right. It has. And I didn't think it came with all the other baggage, though. The most eligible bachelor in America. Well, it's very flattering. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I sleep any better at night. Being that. No way. Do you mean like alone or not alone? <laughs> what did you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right.
But with all that money, fame, and career accomplishments, we were surprised to hear this from him. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life is me. I thank God. It's got to be more than this. What's the answer? I wish I knew. I wish I knew. I love playing football and I love being the quarterback for this team. And, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of other parts about me that I'm trying to find. Ten years later, he was uh, talking about this and he said that people sent him Bibles. After, after watching this interview. And then he kind of laughed it off and just said, ah, what do I know? I was only a kid. I was 27 years old. Um, but th- this is, I think the people that sent him Bibles were on to something. How do you reach the pinnacle of performance in this kind of uh, high level of achievement and then still feel some, like something is lacking? Pascal, again, he says, there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every person. We are created for relationship with God. And while I'm saying this, I know that there are probably people in this room who think like, hey, I know that what you're saying, like I get what you're saying, but I still want to make sure. I want to go look for happiness in all these places and I'll make sure it's not found there, right? Like I'll, I'll go, you know, there's this, someone said that people say money doesn't buy happiness, but they still want to find out for themselves to be sure, you know? So I know money doesn't buy happiness, but I want to make sure. I'm going to go look and make sure that uh, money doesn't buy happiness, Why is this the dynamic of the human heart? Why do we experience this? Why is there, why is this, this sense of longing, the sense that something is missing? If to to really answer this question, we have to go back to the very beginning. When we think about the way God created the heavens and the earth, God made man in his image and God created all of uh, creation and the creatures and the, the marvels of the mountains and all of these things. And at one point in time, everything was as it should be. When God created the heavens and the earth, he said, it is good. It's very good. He created humanity and everything was right. This was a time of unbroken fellowship between people, between Adam and Eve, between God, and even with creation. You have very few moments in your life where everything is as it should be. You might have like a, an afternoon on a vacation, right? You're like, this day was perfect. It was, I was, it, it, the day went like I wanted it to go. It was amazing. I had a nice refreshing nap and then read a book and then I watched the sunset over the water and it was so beautiful. And you just have little snapshots of everything as it should be. But then you go back into the, place where you're staying, you stub your toe, and you're, you know, back to reality, right? It's like, this, this is not how it should be. We have this, if we're paying attention enough, if we're not numbing those feelings, we can tap into this idea regularly that, hey, things are not as it should be, but at one time, everything was as it should be. There was no sickness, no pain. Relationships were harmonious. There was no division between people, no division between people and God, but then the fall happened. And all of death and sin and all of these things entered the world and now humanity was not in harmony with each other. They were not in harmony with their creator and they were not in harmony with creation. 
And since that time, because God is loving, because God is gracious, he has put within the heart of every human the sense that something is missing until something is restored. That we bear the fall within our own minds, our own hearts, our own bodies. The brokenness of sin is, is thorough and, and, and impacted everything. But God didn't leave us with that. God had a, had a plan even for this brokenness and a plan to restore and a plan to bring people back to him. And this plan of redemption is put into place that God was going to send someone to fix this. And in the Old Testament, we have echoes and shadows and kind of forecasts of what God is going, what God has planned. We have this, this people that God calls out. Abraham would be a blessing to all of these nations and that, that from his family would come someone that would bring people back together again and bring people back to God. And there's this plan of redemption. And I think this is what Jesus is referring to when he says salvation is of the Jews. He's talking to this woman at Samaria and he says salvation or redemption is from the Jews. This, this, our, this people of God are supposed to embody God's plan of restoring all things to himself. And then he says, not only is salvation of the Jews, but the Messiah is here right now in this conversation with this woman. What you have been looking for, what you've been longing for, what you've been searching for in these relationships, the spiritual thirst that you have, can be quenched through a relationship with him. The Messiah is here. Jesus is there to bring living water. Water that is alive. Water that, not, not just a sense of this biological life, and we, we talk about, it's on the back of your program every week, the difference between the two kinds of life that scripture talks about. There's this word bios, where we get biological life, and then there's this word zoe, which is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about living water. That Jesus came, it's what he's referring to in John 10.10 when he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And C.S. Lewis, here we go again, Uh, C.S. Lewis points out the difference. I say that because I quote him often. The Bible far more often though, just so you know, just to be clear. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis and the way he puts things, but obviously a very distant second to the Bible. Okay. He talks about the difference between these these two words. And what Jesus comes to bring in, this, in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, in reality, the difference between biological life and spiritual life is so important that I'm going to give them two distinct names. The biological sort, which comes to us through nature, and which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, water, food, etc., is bios. The spiritual life which is in God from all eternity and which made the whole natural universe is Zoe. Bios has to be sure a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place or a statue and a man. A man who changed from having Bios to having Zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. The world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues. And there is a rumor going around that some of us are someday going to come to life. When Jesus puts people, brings people into relationship with himself, he gives them something that only he can give them, which is zoe, 
this life that he gives us, that actually gives us meaning and answers those deep questions of the human heart, the search for meaning, the crisis of meaning can be over through a relationship with Jesus Christ. What was broken at the fall, what used to be in the early days of creation and then what was lost and then we all have this sense of something's lost, something's missing, that can be resolved, that can be restored through a relationship with Jesus. Jesus comes to give life and give it to the full. Jesus connects these dots completely in John 17, uh, verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The way that you know Jesus, this plan of redemption that Jesus came to bring about, he died on the cross for our sins. He gave us life so that we could not only have eternity with him someday, but his eternal life now. That what our culture needs more than anything, this crisis of hope that our world is experiencing, can be restored, can be solved by this relationship with Jesus Knowing Jesus and having the life that he came to bring meets those deep needs in our heart. It's what Tom Brady was looking for. It's what the Olympic athletes that, that thought they would find some deep sense of meaning after winning all those gold medals and discovered they were disappointed by that. It's what they were looking for. In Ephesians chapter 2, 12 through 13, the Apostle Paul's writing to this church at Ephesus and he talks about uh, what God has done in the, with them. I'm going to read two verses, but there's one phrase in particular I want you to focus on. He says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The phrase that is so powerful here is he says, At one time you, were, you had no hope and you were without God in the world. You were walking through this life. You were like the mass of men leading lives of quiet desperation. He says, at one time you were like that, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near the, by the blood of Christ. This is the plan of salvation. This is what Jesus brings. Through his death on the cross, he gives life. And that life is, is something that's possible to give us hope and meaning and joy. And, and, and then our life together as followers of Christ is to pursue Jesus. Because at one time we were without God, but now because we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, we were without God and having no hope, but now we can have hope and we want to pursue that to the full. Not at a low level. We want to pursue Jesus together. We want to gather each week to worship him and then to follow him throughout the week. And we take on this life of discipleship, this pathway that we go upon together. We walk on and journey on together. And we'll talk more about that um, in next week's message. But our relationship with Jesus gives us a new identity. It gives us a fresh start. It gives us this opportunity to have, have this deep needs of the human heart answered. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Augustine knew that from personal experience because he was someone who was looking for the, he was looking for meaning through relationships. He lived a wild life before he came to Christ. And he wrote, the, wrote about that in his confessions. But he was someone who was pursuing like just 
if I have this, these relationships or have enough of a good time, that will answer the deep need in my heart. And he says, no, no, no. God's not going to let you do that because you were made for a relationship with him. You've made us for yourself, he says to God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So for all of you listening to me this morning, like I think we all have areas of our life where you probably know what I'm saying at some level, that Jesus is the answer, right? That's a phrase we say sometimes, Jesus is the answer. And you go, yeah, I know, but then you might have areas of your life that you're tempted to maybe, maybe the answer's over here. Maybe it is through relationships with other people and that will meet your need. Maybe it's through popularity. Maybe it's celebrity. Do you know that so many kids, we meet all these kids at, at camp and doing these summer camps and, and, and so many of the kids, if you ask them what they want to do when they grow up, they're like, I'm going to be a YouTuber. It's like number one answer right now from the kids. I'm going to be a YouTuber because they're being told regularly that this is the path to meaning. And maybe they wouldn't put it together in, that, in their little minds that way, but they're like, this is the good life. If you have a popular YouTube channel and can make a living off of making videos and posting them online, that's like the, the path to the good life. But what, they're, what they're looking for is God. What people are really looking for is God. They're, the hope and the lack of hope that people are experiencing is because it's a lack of a relationship with their creator. God made us for a relationship with him, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. And so where are you looking that is, not, that is outside of the true source of hope and meaning? Maybe you're not a follower of Christ this morning and you're, you're here for, for whatever reason, but you've, you've come here today and maybe you've been looking for meaning or maybe you've just been numbing it. You go, I don't even want to deal with those questions right now. I'm just going to like drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be. I'm going to numb it. So I don't even have to think about that. I'm just going to have fun. What you will find is that that pursuit will let you down. What you need is a relationship with your creator. And God wants you to be in a relationship with him. And then we can give our lives to this and to this mission. And when I think about where I am in my ministry, I've been serving Christ for about 20 years in ministry. And I think I probably have about roughly 20 years to go. 15 to 20 years, God, if God has that in his plan. What I want to give my life to is this. This is, this is worth giving a life to. That, that helping people find life in Christ and helping people become fully alive in Christ, that is our mission as a church. That is our heartbeat. That is what we are all about, is helping people know Jesus and then not some low-level thing, but a fullness of knowing Jesus and the life that he brings and pursuing that relationship with him that answers those deep needs. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus this morning, I'm going to invite you to do that in just a few moments. And then for all of us who are on board already, we say, yes, I want you to remember that Jesus is your source, the living water that quenches your spiritual thirst. That's Jesus. Don't let the world confuse you about where life is found. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time of reflecting together on what it means to be fully alive in you. And Lord, I'm, I'm aware, just, just thinking about anyone in this room watching us online or, or, or watching this at a later date, um, Lord, that, that maybe hasn't put their faith in you yet. I pray that right now in this moment, you would bring them to yourself. Lord, we, 
the, the thing about what you offer us is that it's not something that we can earn it. We, can't des- we, we don't deserve it. We won't deserve it. But it's an incredible gift of grace that we just simply receive. We say yes to. Your word tells us, Lord, that it's by grace through faith that we receive this gift. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody who has yet to put their faith in you that right now in this moment, bring them into your family. Help them to say yes to you right now. And then, Lord, help us together as a church to pursue this life in you that we're all about becoming fully alive in Christ, that we are together, doing this together. We're pursuing you and walking this path with you. We are your disciples. We are your followers. We want to know you more. We want to grow in our relationship with you. And our world confuses us regularly about where true meaning is found. And so, Lord, if we've been drifting, if we've been confused lately about where hope is, draw us back to yourself. Draw us back to the source. May we turn our backs on the things that distract us from our relationship with you and distract us from this life that we have in you and pursue the life that you offer in fullness. May we give you all of our allegiance. May we put all of our hope in you. And then may we then love the people around us and serve the people around us, no strings attached, without an agenda because we're receiving what we need from you and we can just love and serve and help and do what you're calling us to do for the people in our lives and be on your mission together as a community of faith. Lord, we thank you so much for this time and your word and I pray that you would help us as a church to be united around this idea of pursuing life in you and helping the people around us who are without you and without hope in this world to find you as well. Lord, we thank you so much for this time and your word. We thank you for this time of worship and I pray that you'd bless us now as we lift our voices together a final time this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.